You're listening to The Retail Perch with Shekhar Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of The Retail Perch. We took a little hiatus there a couple of weeks in between. We got really busy with our lives there, Gary, right? Yes, we did. And it's it's hard to believe that uh, summer is almost over here. I know. It's the first of, well, we're recording this very close to the end of August, so you're probably going to hear it by the time it's September. But uh, it's been a fantastic summer. I've been busy, you know, lots of interesting things happening around the world. But today, we're really, really excited to meet a one-of-a-kind guest on the retail perch. Now, we've, Gary, we've spoken to technologists, we've spoken to brands, retailers, analysts, PR people, all kinds of people. We've never spoken to an inventor so far, I believe. That's right. That's right. And especially uh, a technology that is so pervasive and embedded in the retail industry. Yeah. And, and a technology that you don't even think somebody invented. You Somehow you feel like it's always been there because it's such an integral part of our life. It's on everything that I buy from no matter which retailer I go to, this thing has got uh, you know Paul's imprint on it. So our guest today is Paul McEnroe, and uh, one day maybe we'll also get John McEnroe on the retail perch. But <laughs> today we have Paul <laughs> McEnroe. Um, we will be talking about different things though. But uh, Paul's, uh, I'm going to let uh, Paul kind of give you his uh, background and his story for the first five minutes because uh, I'm sure he's got such a long and illustrious background. Might take the whole episode to really introduce him properly, but for brevity's sake, we will. Uh, get through that in the first five minutes. But Paul is the inventor of the ubiquitous barcode. Uh, and that's all I need to say about uh, that. So Paul, welcome to the Retail Perch. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So Paul, we'd love for our audience to kind of hear your background. You know, where'd you grow up, your back, your, ed your education experience, your industry experience, and how did you wind up inventing this amazing thing? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I'd be happy to uh, to say a few words about that. Uh, so, first of all, I uh, yeah, I started out in an orphanage uh, in uh, in Michigan. Uh, parents, uh, coal miners from uh, West Virginia, couldn't afford me. Was adopted uh, a couple of years later by a loving family in Ohio. Grew up in Dayton, Ohio, in a modest setting, uh, but. My parents, uh, adopting parents, uh, weren't well educated. My father never went to school. My mother, I don't believe, graduated from high school. But uh, they were very wonderful, kind people who hadn't had a child for their 20 years of marriage. So they adopted me. And um, uh, they convinced me that education was a very important uh, factor. And uh, that was enough to get me going. And uh, I went through all the school system in uh, Dayton, Ohio, uh, even up through college, which I worked my way through various jobs uh, in uh, newspapers. First of all, the paper route and then a full time job at the newspaper company. And then finally uh, went into uh the University of Dayton and uh, got a degree and uh, went to graduate school and got a, another degree and started interviewing around. And my father had uh, always told me wonderful stories about the West because he had been adopted and had to run away from home to the West as well. And then uh, he met my mother after he served in the First World War and they were uh, 
married in Idaho, but they moved back to Ohio. And so I always had this love of the West and, and, and of horses and that sort of thing. So that's kind of guided my social life. Anyway, I uh, took a job at IBM in California and uh, went to work uh, there uh, doing research and uh, studying at Stanford at the same time on advanced degrees. And um, I, I, fortunately, uh, I, I was assigned to do uh, this advanced development in computer things that uh, interfaced with mostly computers, either, you know, human interface to computers. And one of them was scanning. So I did a lot of scanning. Most, it was most of what I did for those nine years. And then... Um, so this is 1960s, is that right? This is, yeah, so it, I, I joined IBM in 1960. So nine years later, 1969, a senior executive of IBM, later to become president of IBM, uh, walked in my office and said, Paul, we want you to change jobs and uh, step aside and find a new business area for us to go into. And the background to that is that the president CEO of IBM at the time, Frank Carey, very famous person, uh, had, uh, you know, IBM was on a terrific growth curve. You know, I forget what the percentage was, but it was phenomenal. And he said, you know, the growth in computers is just not big enough for us to keep our growth curve going. So we got to get at least in the periphery of computers, some applications that we're not in yet. And uh, that's the only way we're going to grow. So he uh, asked his staff to go out and buy some companies in Silicon Valley. And and uh, they said, no, Frank, you don't understand. You know, you're too isolated here. Uh, the, the, the people won't come with the companies. They'll quit the next morning. They don't want the blue uh, suits or white shirts, red ties, black wingtips, and, uh, you know, all that stuff that went with IBM. And uh, so he said, okay, well, uh, we got to do something. So they worked out an alternative, which was to go find somebody in IBM and paint in an imaginary red line around them so that they could operate like a startup company instead of like a commercial IBM, which had all these rules and regulations that you'd never <laughs> be able to start a company up under. And uh, somehow they picked me out to be the engineering uh, development manager of that. And, and another gentleman to head it up as the overall business manager. So but this, I had just company have a name? Did the subsidiary have a name? Not, not yet. Did not have a name. We named okay. it. And okay. uh, the name we gave to it uh, six months later was Consumer Transaction Systems. So CTS. Okay. Yes. So okay. it stood for anything where there was a transaction with the consumer. So hmm. that was the name that, it, but it hadn't happened yet. So we, meanwhile, so then the, the guy that they had uh, set me up to work for quit. <laughs> he left the company because they wanted to do the, the, the project in North Carolina. We were in California and uh, he didn't want to move to, to North Carolina. And the reason they wanted to, IBM wanted to do a product in North Carolina was that factory was pretty empty, whereas the factory in California was full. Anyway, so uh, then since I had just uh, Pretty much completed the equivalent of an MBA at uh, at Stanford. I think they just decided to, you know, have me uh, be the systems manager, doing business and marketing as well as the engineering. So I did that for a period of time, and I looked at different industries for us to start in. And like I said, they didn't want to go into something so different from computers, like oil exploration or something like that, real estate. They wanted to do something where it touched 
computers, such as banking, you know, or, or airline reservations or something like that. But I picked point of sale. The reason I picked point of sale, I mentioned I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, in the shadow of uh, National Cash Register uh, and CR, uh, which had 95% of the business in point of sale from the 1880s. So, right. you know, a uh, long time. But you know what the product looked like. Great big iron cash register, hard to modify, no electronics in it to speak of, uh, you know, just electrical equipment uh, with printers and cast iron and weighted a, a lot and so on, hard to change. And so I could see that the writings in the uh, various rags of the industry uh, that were uh, going on at the time were talking about item identification. So we could see that that was coming and we, we thought we could really improve the operation of the supermarket. Then uh, that happened more so and more so. So I put a proposal together in 1969, took it to the IBM executives and they blessed it. And then in 1970, just the next year, but luckily for us, the uh, Supermarket Institute, under the leadership of Alan Haberman, uh, decided to form an, a, an ad hoc committee to select whatever that item identifier was going to be. And mm. so they formed the committee in 1970. This was about a year after we had started. So we were already working on this. And they uh, went through a selection process. They put out... they they wisely realized that they didn't have the expertise, the supermarket executives themselves, to make all these technical decisions and so on and so forth. And so they uh, hired uh, McKinsey and Company consulting firm out of New York, uh, right. leading consulting firm of the day, to do that job for them. And so we and all the other manufacturers who were interested worked with them. There were 14 manufacturers working on the project wow. at the time. All the big well, ones. That's how many joined up. Uh, seven were named finalists. And uh, in my book, I do have a copy of the page out of the business week for that, uh, the week that it was selected in 1973. And our code was selected basically. Uh, wow. Actually, uh, there's a little story, if you don't mind a little story, uh, uh, the, yeah. head of the, the head of the head of McKinsey uh, walked out of the decision meeting that the Supermarket Institute Ad Hoc Committee was making and said, Paul, he said, your code is by far, uh, you know, superior in every way to all the other codes. But the committee is thinking they can't select it because there'll be too much social reaction to us picking the code of Big Blue, the biggest company in the world. Blah, wow. Blah, blah, so you almost didn't get picked. So, right. so he said, they're not going to pick you. Oh, my God. And so I said, well, and this is in the book, too. I said, you know what? Before I came out here, my staff uh, pointed out two improvements. It's actually a guy on my staff, George Lauer. He had two improvements that uh, we uh, had made after the deadline for making improvements. And uh, so I didn't put them in. They were very minor, very minor. It didn't even change the scanner equipment or the logic to read it or anything. It, it, it almost invisible to the eye. But anyway, they were slight improvements. I said, uh, you know, Larry, and was the guy from uh, uh, McKinsey. 
I'm going to give you these two improvements and I'm not going to claim any right to them or title or anything else like that. And you guys can take them and call that your own code. And then you don't have to say that you picked IBM's code. And wow. so as a matter of fact, he, he came back out uh, sometime later and told me, Hey, I'm surprised, but they bought it. And so wow. uh, you'll see if you read the uh, business week article that, it shows a picture of our code as proposed and a picture of the code they've selected. And you can see it's virtually identical to the IBM code and very different from all the other codes that were submitted. But wow. nevertheless, uh, we won. I was a little worried that I might get fired or something because I had no authority to do that. But, uh, you know, uh, I did want to correct one thing uh, that you stated in the beginning about me inventing the code. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that it was developed by a team effort, uh, not an individual. It was something that took place over quite a long period of time, years. And uh, also, there's no invention because we were told wisely by the Supermarket Institute, these people figured it out wisely, that uh, whoever submits a solution to this item identification thing that they had talked about should put it in the public domain so that nobody is going to become, you know, the, the richest person in the world right. for having, uh, you know, because with 10 billion a day, like you say, you know, I mean, no matter how small an amount you get for every one, I mean, you'd be the richest person in the world. So they wanted to protect that. So we were all told, don't file any patents on this thing. Oh. So even the team didn't file a patent. Now we patented and everybody else patented the equipment that reads it and so on. Everybody can make their own equipment. Right. And anybody that submitted a code had to agree to put a publication out that would help everybody else read the code and build equipment, their own equipment, and they mm -hmm. could patent that. So that's the way it worked. That's the way people made money, but nobody ever got rich off of any patent on the code. And, and as I say, I like to say that it was uh, developed by a team and, 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 and the team uh, I had that I, I formed in, in 1969, uh, the first we had six guys that started on that team and basically they were the ones that came up with the code hmm. wow that is stunning that's amazing so when did it go into major adoption like you know when was it actually okay wrong? so very good question so in uh by 1973 by the time the code was selected we had it working very well as a matter of fact in my book for people who are technically oriented i put an appendix and the appendix is not something i wrote now I couldn't even remember how to write it. The appendix I wrote in 1971, two years wow. before it was selected. And it tells the gory details of why this code is superior to anything. And uh, so that's in there for all of the experts to read. Actually, if you go to the web, you'll find out that, you know, uh, it says, even in Wikipedia, one place, it's it's it. Uh, there was a thing about IBM just... Uh, came up with this idea at the last minute but here two years before i had already published it and right. actually i i took that publication and presented it not to the supermarket institute because they weren't ready for it yet but to the national retail merchants association in dallas texas at their convention so it's word for word what i presented and it's a wow. it, it, it's quite a long appendix anyway back at the ranch uh, we worked uh, closely with the supermarket institutes. We had a laboratory test facility. I think every major supermarket chain at the time came and uh, saw our test equipment after 
our announcement in 73. We couldn't uh, show them the stuff before it was announced because we were, you know, always uh, being very careful not to do a restraint of trade or anything like that. IBM being, you know, uh, such a big company. So 1974, uh, we opened our first test store and the first store was actually uh, that was actually a commercial store uh, was an NCR uh installation in Troy, Ohio, not far from Dayton, uh, where they, uh, you know, scanned items. We were scanning at the same time, but we were scanning in test stores, not in a real store. I mean, they were real stores, but I mean, it wasn't a commercial item that had been bought because it was still test equipment. And we were doing that in uh, Steinway in uh, Montreal, Quebec, and also in the Pathway store in uh, New Jersey. Anyway, uh, our first opening was in uh, in 74, but the code really didn't pick up until probably 77 or so. Uh, and, you know, it, at first you had to print the code in the store with a cheap, inexpensive printer. And that's where most of the bar codes or the codes that were selected in in, in competition with us would have failed because there are all kinds of problems you have with inexpensive printers printing these codes. And if it failed in the first few years, it would have never kicked off and never it would have never gotten up by the bootstraps. And such things as, you know, all these previous codes, the bullseye code, so on and so forth, they A, took up a lot of space, but B, they, uh, if you have too much ink in the printer or not enough ink, you, you get an unreadable code. Whereas our code had a facility for reading just as well if it had too much ink or as little because we measured from the start of the beginning of a bar to the start of the beginning of the next bar and if both bars get bigger they both those left sides move to the left and if and, and if they don't right. have enough ink they move to the right and the errors cancel whereas other people were meeting the width of a bar comparing it with the width of the next space bars get fatter the spaces get narrower the right. error multiplies. So if you can, uh, for the audience, high level, break down, I mean, this is the engineer in me asking, how does the barcode, I mean, people would just see, you know, black lines with some spaces, different varying thicknesses, and, you know, and, you know, right. some, it's magic, like, how does this represent a number, right? If you can just kind yeah. of break down, how does that work? Yeah, sure. So, so basically, two bars and two spaces represent a number. And you have uh, numbers on the left-hand side and numbers on the right-hand side. And McKinsey wisely concluded that, you know, what we needed was five on each side, five for the manufacturer on one side, the left, and five on the right for the item uh, itself. And then so those two bars, so you might see a real fat bar and then a skinny bar. And then, of course, you have the spaces accordingly in between them. So that that's enough information and a little more to pick a number so you get a digit you don't get alphanumerics because you know you don't have right. enough so it's basically a binary that's been that's converted right. into a that's right okay. exactly okay. exactly and as i said we measure the leading edge of a bar to the leading edge of the next bar the trailing edge of a bar to the trailing edge of the next bar very very unique nobody else did that and so it eliminates these things about bars too fat, bars too skinny, and blurs on the end of bars because these 
in-store printers had to print fast and very cheap. And so you're moving the paper while you're bringing a stamp down on it and you get blur at the, we can put the blur at the tip of the bar, nobody cares. Whereas if you have a bullseye or a circle, you can't tell where the blur is gonna be and right. you get a misread. That's 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 wow. amazing. All right. So, so uh, Paul, what exactly? Because there's a lot of pieces, right? That that make the the barcode workable, from the the barcode itself to the scanner, uh, printers. Uh, you know, once that code is read, you know, connecting to a computer to understand what product it is, etc. What all did IBM provide across that whole? sort of ecosystem? You know, Gary, that's like the best question I've been asked in quite a few podcasts. And <laughs> it, it, it shows you really have a good uh, feeling for this thing. You know, uh, almost nobody realizes it, but everything else besides the code was as big and as important as the code. And if we didn't have that and have it economically, we would have never started scanning. And uh, you, you kind of nailed it there. It, it starts out with the scanner. And uh, what had happened just before this time frame was the helium neon laser uh, was invented and uh, we were able to get it in half milliwatt form. And uh, so we were able to come out with a bright light source. And I have worked with lasers in that research I told you that I had done before. So I was very familiar with that. And I had worked on scanning, you know, the dots on the head of a pin uh, as uh, James Bond and Q might have done. I did that for the CIA. So I knew how to get the best resolution and everything with the laser light and so on. So that was uh, a real fantastic uh, thing that that came available. And by the way, there's another story in the book that's very interesting. Is the, the lawyers in IBM heard we were going to put a laser in the machine. Uh, and, you know, somebody even introduced legislation into the United States Congress or had a proposal that they were going to because they said the government is using lasers to shoot airplanes out of the sky and we can't put them in the national regular supermarket. But I, 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 half a milliwatt, you know, is uh, right. a fraction of nothing of uh, a 60 watt light bulb that's already in the supermarket, you know. Right. So anyway, we uh, I, I had to go buy rhesus monkeys from Africa and send them to Stanford Research Institute to do a uh, basic study on the uh, accumulation problems of uh, laser light in the human eye, which oh was God. equivalent to a rhesus monkey. Yeah. There's a lot of funny stories in there about that. It's called monkey business. Anyway, so, but then the next thing was the communications, uh, Gary, and the communications is really uh, very necessary because we could have as many as uh, oh, 10, 12 check stands in the United States, but 40 in Europe in cash and carry stores of the time that they, they were kind of like pre Costco's. And uh, so you got up to 40 people pulling an item across a, uh, a scanner. And before uh, time enough passes that the person notices it takes any time for the price to come up on the display, We've got to send that along with maybe 39 other scans back to a back room, look it up on, look the number up, because the number's the same for all stores. Right. Look the number up and uh, change the inventory uh, and make and look up the price and whatever descriptor 
the supermarket wants to write out on the check slip, slip and then send that back to the printer to print and the display to display while it's incremented the inventory and if necessary ordered something else from the from from inventory so that took a communication system that we didn't have and we wanted that communication system to work over existing store wiring so they didn't have to rewire the whole store that meant plain telephone lines because they did have telephones between the check stands and the back room and uh, we did that through a communication system that these six guys, two of them were communications engineers, came up with. And by the way, uh, a, a decade and a half later, I came back to Raleigh and uh, Ethernet had just been announced. Mm -hmm. And I was told by the IBM president, fix this quick. We don't have an Ethernet. And I came up with a thing called Token Ring. And oh we wow! Invent, we did invent the token ring, and this was the supermarket. Of we course. called it Store Loop, Sloop, S L O O P, Store Loop. Oh my God! So you were part and of the token ring, the token team? ring. So, and I did that wow. too. Yeah. So wow. anyway, uh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, Gary, and finally answer your question. There's more, but the, the the next most important one is the the magnetic storage. We didn't have magnetic storage that would do the problem. We had to look the items up really quick, all these different yep. items from 40 different right. scanners. And then we had to have a, a big enough volume to hold the whole inventory and all that kind of stuff. So we needed both fixed and movable heads on a magnetic media that had never been done before. And uh, so we did that. We put in what was contact recording. It was really a Bernoulli effect and not really contact, but we called it that. And um, uh, it, it was the first use of the Winchester technology that went on floppy disks. Yeah. Uh, and so so the magnetics was very unique in itself. So all of those things uh, is where IBM came in. And I was able to, you know, hire people from within IBM and a few from outside that had expertise in these areas. And I had touched in most of these areas in my previous workings. And so I got IBM labs around the world to like the one in, uh, in England uh, did the uh, magnetic thing. We did the communications thing ourselves and uh, Endicott did the printer things. So we were working with three continents and uh, many labs wow. to get all this done. Wow. So this is amazing. I mean, you look at a simple barcode and you see, you know, black stripes and you don't realize how much had to go to make that actually real and usable in the world. And and, and so, Paul, you're, are you saying barcodes first went into supermarkets on products sold in supermarkets? When did it kind of go explode into pretty much all of retail? Was it around the same time or was I it? I think it was in the 80s. It, no, I think it, it was in the 80s. It yeah. was. Uh, so we started on it in 69. Uh, it's standard selected in 73. First installation, 74. I think at the end of 74, we only had five supermarkets installed. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and so 75, 76, 77. And then, you know, the, the supermarkets would come to us and have us uh, write uh, firmware, which went in read-only storage, which was used at the time because it was, you know, faster than you could get uh, random storage. Now it's not a problem. And and so by the time, you know, anybody got all of their chains uh, installed and everybody was getting uh, marking from the manufacturers, it was at the end of the 70s. And so by the time you got real volume installed, 
it was the early 80s. Yeah. By the early 80s, IBM went from 0% of the market to, uh, I think in major supermarkets, which was a certain definition, we were at like 80%. Uh, we went yeah. from zero to 80%. And I think NCR, unfortunately for them, went from 95% to single digits. Yeah. Uh -huh. Shaker, remember what had to be happening in parallel here was it was really a chicken and egg problem, right? While the technology had been developed to do this with all the benefits that accrue to the retailer, the other side of the equation was getting all the brand manufacturers to print that barcode on their products. Exactly. Because that, that's right. And that's what I'm saying. That that had to happen before it could be really ubiquitous. And yeah. that happened in the very late 70s. Yep. Yeah, as I think... I'm remembering back, we installed scanning in our stores. It was sometime around 80, early 80s. Yeah, that's right. That That's what I say you got the volume. So you, you got a, a, a significant percentage. I don't remember the percents, but I'm going to guess, you know, three-fourths of what they're doing now, two-thirds of what, uh, you know, two-thirds two of the major companies were had it done in the late 70s. But then people have got to order and install uh, all these supermarkets and it's not instantaneous. So by the time you had the the, the the volume installations, I think it was the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the other important thing to call out here for our listeners is the implications of this technology, right? If, if you back up and stop to think about it, Shaker, in retail, before the invention and use of the barcode, as a retailer, we did not have individual SKU level data, right? When that product came across that checkout counter, it was, you know, 59 cents, you know, grocery or, you know, 59 cents yeah. frozen food. Um, we didn't know what the item was. We knew what department or category it went to, but that was it, right? Well, that's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. And, you know, uh, we didn't talk about it yet, but uh, the biggest problem uh, was uh, social problems uh, and legal problems with the installation of the code. So, yep. for example, in uh, a first store installation, I sent my best engineer. He was one of the guys that came up with the with the uh, store loop that later became the mm -hmm. uh, token ring. And I sent him up. Alex Soschenko was his name. And he went up to our first store, which was Giant Store in uh, Tyson's Corner, Virginia. And uh, I told him, you know, call me first thing. If, you know, uh, tell me that it went great or if, uh, hopefully you're not going to tell me there's a problem. So uh, he calls first thing is the store is supposed to open. And uh, everything, I even had duplicated controllers. We didn't talk about that. That's another thing. We put duplicated controllers in because when you're taking the price off the item, what are you going right. to do? And so anyway, he calls me, hey, Paul, he says, uh, I'm sorry, but the store couldn't open. What? what are you talking about? I mean, <laughs> we checked everything 16 ways from Sunday. He said, yeah, it's not the technology. Uh, there's a picket line outside the store. Nobody's allowed near, can get to the front door. Wow. And uh, labor unions had uh, picketed the store because of price removal. And they were worried they were going to uh, have all this scanning and uh, lose uh, check stand operator positions and so on and so forth. Yeah. And uh, then, uh, you know, that problem fizzed and went away after a couple of days. The store opened. But in the course of the next few months, 18 states passed laws against 
uh, operating a store without price marking. Or actually, most of the laws said if you put uh, a scanner in the store, then you had to do price marking because they didn't want to bother stores that weren't doing anything different. And uh, you know, for example, California was one of those. And in California, they did have the foresight to write the law so that if if nobody complained and it, it after one year it would just die it would go away so you know they and and it did but i had to i went to other states like montana and everything to uh to deal with that question of what are you gonna do about the prices and uh in answer to uh the, the point you raised is uh even before that uh i went to our test store in montreal quebec and uh, a lady, uh, a little old lady had just finished shopping and was walking out of the store. And uh, it happened that I met there with uh, an executive from the Canadian government who was dealing with this question that we'd been dealing with in the United States of well, what does it mean to the consumer to have the prices off the merchandise? And the point you brought up, Gary, about uh, itemized understanding of what individual your individual item you're selling so anyway uh he stops this old lady and he says uh are you upset that the prices are not on the merchandise does that bother your shopping and she says oh no sir she says uh it's uh it's actually fantastic because and i was standing right there listening to this she says uh look at my slip here so she pulls out the check register and it shows instead of like you say grocery or just blank and 59 cents 37 cents 42 cents and nobody can keep track of which is what right. uh that they bought and now it says you know wheaties large size you know right. with almonds you know 37 cents and she says look at this now what i do every time i shop i go down to the next supermarket and I can see how much that item cost here and how much it cost there. And I know which yeah. one to buy. I can do uh, price uh, shopping. Yeah. And I never could do that before. And, you know, we never heard another hint of any problem with the Canadian <laughs> government. And the, the guy was kind of set back in his tracks by this little old lady. And so, but yes, now we have all of that. That is great. And by the way, you know, we, we did a magnetic code. It's the same code, but it's in magnetic media instead of black and white for the National Retail Merchants Association and all of the uh, stores, you know, that belong to them. And remember, at this time, the big three stores in the country were Sears, Pennies and Wards. Uh, Montgomery Wards. And right. so they didn't know whether to use uh, barcode printed or the or the magnetic code but it was the same code we had the same readers the same logic and everything and uh so that was uh, a big factor as well so so is the is the mag stripe on credit cards also kind of using the same logic or it 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 it, it uses slightly different logic and a slightly different encoding uh i was a part of the team that did that for the first time and we also built the magnetic stripe for um the barrier rapid transit bark uh and that was slightly different as well but we had learned how to do that and um it, we didn't need these corrections uh, you know the supermarket code is corrected uh, you know actually if you scan if one of the numbers uh, the bars associated with a number are completely blurred it will correct that it can read the other nine 
and figure out, okay, if those nine were this, then the 10th one had to be that and it'll correct oh, wow. it. And it, it will, if there's two errors, it can't correct it, but it will right. notify you that it made a mistake. And so it has all of that uh, built into it as well. But the social issues were were very, very large, and they did hold back to some degree the amount of time it took to get There's it. There's an interesting uh, story I want to kind of add in here, Paul. I don't know, I'm sure you're aware of this, but back in, I think, the 13th century, when Venice was uh, kind of like the center of the world um, for trading and merchants, the Italians brought back the concept of uh, universal time from China because there were no there was no universal time like people didn't know what nine o'clock meant right yeah because right. people didn't have watches and clocks you could just tell people let's meet at the Times square at noon when at high noon right and you look at this position of the sun there was no way to coordinate and what really happened is in 13th century venice when uh, this concept of this water clock from china came back and they converted that into this tower clock in the center of the city you could now have merchants that agreed to meet at 11 a.m at the port and so trade exploded because now you could actually coordinate meetings between people at a time that you can agree on and uh it's interesting because you know the barcode is simple but it it, it enables and facilitates trade and tracking transactions and business at a level that was that's scalable and like uh it, it's amazing and i think most people don't realize how fundamental it is to today's commerce uh oh yeah the, the yeah. car i mean everything in the car and the whole assembly line and everything they, they scan items and you know think of amazon you know i mean well, yeah. when you just buy something you know where does it go what box does it go into what line does it go down all the automation you know, you can really do immense automation with the barcodes. So, so what we have today, things. we, of course, have different types of barcodes, right? You have the QR code and you have the yeah. GS1 right. code and you have different barcode standards, UPCA versus whatever, 128 or, you know, they have different. But essentially, they're using the same methodology as just different means of encoding. Is that right? Well, it, the bars themselves, when you see the bars, as far as I know, they're all all even the same encoding that we came up with. I think that's oh, wow. all our code. However, the QR code is different because, you know, you use an area. So now, uh, obviously, with the technology that we have, you know, instead of just scanning in one dimension, they can scan in two. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a piece of cake. I mean, right. it's just an extension of the same technology. So I'm a big uh, proponent uh, and uh, of, of the QR code and you know there'll be more codes but i don't think that the barcode is going to go away because it's so simple and it's so ubiquitous yeah. and it's so used by everybody and uh it it does have a lot of flexibility they as you say they've it's easy to add more digits on it then you've got your gs thing and uh you know we did set up a universal product code council organization in uh washington back in the 70s it, at the time we came up with this uh mckinsey had that idea and we support it and so on and so forth and uh, the ad hoc committee and so that uh that has now grown into the gs1 and all, all right. that stuff right. and right. so we did allow for uh, a buried code for country code to be buried in the leading digits of the right. bars and so on. And, 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 and we allowed for that kind of change to be made. And like I so, think the USA is zero, zero, right? It's, it's, uh, I, I can't remember the numbers, but probably. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so we saw that coming, and we allowed it. We 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 uh, in the original book that we put out, it it tells you here's how you can modify the code to extend the character set and so on and so forth. Hmm. Wow, Paul, right. I've I've got to buy your book, so I've got it yeah. right here on Amazon. As soon as we're done, I will uh, click the uh, pre-order button. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, this is this is fantastic. This is a very unique episode, Gary. I mean, we've never had one like this. Yes. And, you know, each time we go into this and record this, Paul, we we're like, we've never spoken to somebody like this. And there's just so many amazing, unique individuals in the world out there. So it was a fantastic experience speaking to you and hearing your stories. I would just wish. I think Gary looks like we're gonna to have to get another episode of Paul in just to make sure we can get the full breadth and color of uh, what yeah, he's there's, there's I, I think a lot more to this, but yeah, uh, yeah. Paul, this has been fascinating. I mean, I grew up in grocery retail, literally, um, and uh, you know, uh, saw this from that side, uh, but you know, familiar with a lot of what you're talking about here. But just fascinating to. Uh, uh, hear your stories here sort of on the uh, the other side. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, Paul, uh, if you do send us your mailing address, we're going to mail you one of these retail perch mugs so you can sip your morning coffee in it. Uh, okay, that's great. Have well, that. I, do I have your email address? I, I well, we'll, we'll have somebody contact you and get your okay. mailing address. Don't worry okay, about that. Okay, great. We'll take That'd be that. great. But, but yeah, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much uh, for joining us here today. And sorry about those initial hiccups, but uh, this should be coming out shortly and we'll make sure you're notified of it. And uh, you okay, can that sounds great. share it with your friends as well. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it as well. Yeah, and, and folks, I hope you had a great time. And you know, if you'd like us to bring on more guests like Paul, although I'm highly doubtful that we'll ever find anybody <laughs> like Paul, uh, I, uh, do let us know, but this has uh, just been a huge education for me as well. So thank you again, Paul, and you have a wonderful day, and thanks for joining us. Gary, anything else? Right. No, Paul, thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking with you. Super. Yeah, I enjoyed talking with both of you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com. Until next time, this is Shaker. And this is Gary, signing off.